Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at how Albert of Mecklenburg and his allies tried to aid the beleaguered Stockholm by establishing a link across the sea through which the city could be supplied with provisions. Since the Duchy of Mecklenburg didn't have a fleet of its own, a group of privateers were tasked with the running of the whole operation. Despite the success of the Victual Brothers, as the privateers came to be known, Albert lost both Stockholm and his Swedish crown. Eventually, he returned to Mecklenburg, where he started a new life, which I'm sure was fulfilling, but outside the scope of this podcast. This did not, however, stop the Victual Brothers from continuing their operation on the Baltic Sea. They just switched from being honored privateers, attacking ships legally with the blessing of the Duke of Mecklenburg, to being reviled pirates, doing the exact same thing on a freelance basis. This time, we'll direct our attention to what was going on back on Scandinavian dry land at the same time as the Victual brothers were roaming the Baltic Sea. When Albert had been evicted, Margaret was on top, and she was determined to stay there. Episode 57, Margaret and Sons. By all accounts, Valdemar Don's youngest daughter, Margaret, was a remarkable woman. Her marriage to Håkon, king of Norway and then heir to the Swedish crown, had been decided when she was only six years old. It was the ultimate Scandinavian dynastic union. The daughter of Valdemar Don married the son of Magnus Eriksson, king of Sweden and Norway. Even though the marriage wasn't consummated for several years, Margaret still moved to Norway as a young girl and was basically brought up by none other than St. Bridget's daughter. In 1370, when Margaret was 17 years old, her and Håkon's only child was born, a son. Since Norway was a hereditary kingdom, the boy was destined to inherit his father's crown, and so he was given a proper Norwegian royal name, Olav. And even though the boy would eventually become king of Norway, it wouldn't be his first crown. In 1375, the year when young Olav was to turn five years old, news came from across the North Sea that his grandfather, the legendary Danish king Valdemar Don, had breathed his last. As you may remember from the earlier episode, Valdemar's son and heir Christopher had died in 1362 while fighting off an invading Hanseatic fleet in Elsinore. Following the death of his son, Valdemar, had been forced to promise that the Danish crown should pass to the offspring of his oldest daughter, Ingeborg, who was married to Duke Henry, the butcher of Mecklenburg. They had a son, Albert. No, not that Albert of Mecklenburg, but another one. Albert was a popular name in the Mecklenburg ducal family. Anyway, it was widely expected, not least in Germany, that Valdemar's German-born grandson, Albert, would be elected to succeed him. But... When she heard about her father's death, Margaret, who herself was only 22 years old at the time, braved the treacherous fall weather on the North Sea, quickly going back to her native Denmark to convince the Danish nobles to elect her son, Olav, king, as quickly as possible, hopefully before her older sister Ingeborg's German family had time to realize there was a vacancy on the Danish throne. And the gamble paid off. 
The Danish nobles, who had assembled in western Zealand, preferred the son of the King of Norway over the son of the Duke of Mecklenburg, and so they elected young Olav as King of Denmark, including Scania. Even though Scania was a part of the Danish kingdom, it wasn't self-evident that the region would accept Olav, since it was still under Hansa control after Valdemar Don had been forced to yield temporary control over Scania to the German merchant organization. Olav's mother, Margaret, also insisted that true heir of Sweden be added to Olav's official royal title, since his paternal grandfather had been king of Sweden as well. So Olav became king of Denmark at the ripe old age of five. That makes him the youngest person ever to accede to the Danish throne. Of course, he wasn't allowed to actually govern. That was left to his mother, Margaret. She was queen, but not of Denmark, but rather of Norway, because she was married to the Norwegian king, Håkon. Margaret was to govern Denmark as regent, until Olav would come of age in another ten years' time or so. One of the first things Margaret had to do as regent was to sign a coronation charter in the name of Olav, where the king and his mother promised to call the Danehof, the medieval Danish parliament, on a yearly basis, and to return land that Valdemar Don had confiscated during his reign. Despite promising to return lands, Margaret continued her father's policy of reclaiming more land that the crown had granted to various aristocrats. This was crucial to strengthen the crown in a time when wealth was measured in land and when, much like today, wealth meant power. An additional measure taken by Margaret to strengthen the crown at the expense of the powerful Danish aristocracy was to make it illegal for a nobleman to construct fortified castles in Denmark. So, she was tough on the aristocracy when she needed to be, but they weren't the only ones who got a taste of her more ruthless side. From 1377, she actually employed privateers to harass the herring trade in Scania, which still was controlled by the Hanseatic League. Margaret was afraid that the German merchants wouldn't want to hand the lucrative region back to Denmark after the 15-year period that they had been granted control would be up in 1385. So, she was going to make the life of the Hanseatic merchants as much of a headache as possible through piracy, sorry, privateering, in order to make sure that the Hansa would honor the deal and hand Scania back to Denmark when the time came. Even though she was tough on the aristocracy and the Hansa, not to mention Albert of Mecklenburg, Margaret always tried to treat the church and its representatives with kid gloves. I don't know if it was due to realpolitical considerations or if it had anything to do with her upbringing under the supervision of St. Bridget's daughter, but Margaret did what she could not to provoke the church, and she favoured the Bridgetines. She also liked giving central positions of power in the royal bureaucracy to clerics. That, of course, may have been because they were the best educated men available, usually much better educated than the various noblemen who were hanging around, spending their time on jousting and other courtly pursuits. In 1380, five years after Margaret and her son Olav had gone to Denmark following the death of Valdemar Don, Margaret's husband and Olav's father, Håkon, the king of Norway, died. By now, when Olav was ten years old, he had been king for half his life. He also inherited his father's Norwegian crown. But in practice, he didn't get to run Norway either. His mother, the Dowager Queen Margaret, became the real power behind the Norwegian throne as well. 
This meant that Denmark and Norway were now ruled by the same man, or rather, the same woman. This arrangement, where Norway was ruled by an absent king, who was also the king of some other place, would remain for a very long time. Hundreds of years, in fact. The next time there would be a king in Norway who was actually born in Norway, reigning in Norway, would be in the 20th century. Only in 1991, when the current king, Harald V, ascended the throne, would the Norwegians once again have a king born in Norway and living in Norway. But that's a topic for an episode a long way into the future. Now, let's get back to double King Olav. He was young and he was king of two countries. Not the worst of starts to a life. Unfortunately for Olav, he didn't get to enjoy being king of Denmark and Norway for very long, because in August 1387 he suddenly died, shortly before his 17th birthday, when he was about to be declared an adult and be allowed to rule his two kingdoms on his own. Olav's sudden death came as a shock to everyone. He'd been so young and healthy. It didn't take long for tongues to start wagging. Some people claimed that Margaret had poisoned her own son when he was on the verge of taking over the reins because she didn't want to lose power over Denmark and Norway. But I'm not sure I buy that theory. Not only because that would make Margaret cold-blooded and ruthless to a degree we have no indication she was, but also because Olaf's death caused just as many problems as it may have solved for her. When Olaf would have become a legal adult, her influence over Denmark and Norway was bound to decrease, that's true. But when he died, she risked seeing all her power lost in one fell swoop. She had no personal claim to power and had only been able to rule as regent for her son. Now when he was gone, she was a nobody, a has-been, yesterday's news. So I'm not convinced by the claim that Margaret somehow would have been involved in Olaf's death. It was the Middle Ages. Seemingly healthy people died from all kinds of things. But that's actually not even the weirdest rumor connected to the young king's death. In 1402, so 15 years later, a guy showed up in northern Germany claiming that he was none other than King Olaf of Denmark and Norway, who everyone thought had been dead for years. He claimed that his mother had indeed tried to poison him, and so he had had no choice but to flee Denmark, going into hiding. He was brought to Danzig by a local merchant, and there the great and the good of the city hailed him as the king of Denmark and Norway. They showered him with gifts and fancy clothes, and even made him a personal seal displaying his status. Encouraged by this reception, he wrote to Margaret, informing her that he was Olaf, her son, who everyone thought was dead, and that he now wanted all his lands, possessions, titles, and crowns back. Margaret wrote back, saying that if he could prove that he was indeed her son, no one would be happier than her, and she would receive him with open arms. But she wasn't convinced. She sent another letter to the authorities in Danzig, explaining the situation and adding a description of how her son Olaf had died in the presence of witnesses back in 1387. One of the men sent to deliver this letter was a certain Falke Jakobsen, one of the very witnesses who had seen Olaf die that summer day 15 years late earlier. The Danzig authorities arranged for the claimant to be brought to Kalmar in Sweden, where his story could be corroborated. Even though the man bore an uncanny resemblance to the dead king, 
he was immediately discovered to be a fraud, since he couldn't answer a single question that the Danes asked him. The main reason for this was that he couldn't actually speak any Danish. Like at all, not a single word. That struck everyone as suspicious, since they had clear recollections of speaking Danish with King Olav when he was alive. Faced with this inconvenient piece of information, the guy who claimed to be Olav confessed that he'd made the whole thing up. His real name was Wolf, and he was German, not Scandinavian. His mother had worked at Margaret's court, but that was the only connection to the Queen and her family. This false Olav, as he's known to history, was arrested and brought to Lund, the seat of the Danish archbishop. There he was put on trial and convicted for les majesté, or a crime against the crown. The sentence was death. His execution attracted a lot of spectators, not least since it was carried out during that all-important southwestern Scania fish market in the fall of 1402. On the day of his execution, the letter he had written to Margaret, claiming to be her son, was hung around his neck, and a mock crown was shoved onto his head. Then he was burned at the stake. But let's now return to the death of the real Olaf in 1387. As I mentioned, the king's premature death caused a problem for Margaret, since she now, technically, no longer had any position of power or authority. The reigns of Denmark and Norway and Sweden would slip from her hands since the person in whose name she ruled was now dead. Awkward. She'd have no choice but to retire to some provincial castle for a comfortable but dull existence as a dowager, far away from the centre of the action. That prospect did not appeal to Margaret, and she wasn't going to let it happen. So she acted quickly and summoned a meeting of the Danish nobility in the city of Lund, which met already seven days after the death of King Olav. She convinced them to appoint her the ruler of Denmark in her own right. It may seem like the obvious choice, since they all knew she'd been running the show for years already, but it was far from trivial in the eyes of these medieval Danish nobles. Margaret was the first woman ever to rule Denmark officially, but even though they consented to elect her their ruler, she wouldn't be Queen of Denmark. That would have been one step too far. Instead, her official title became Almighty Lady and Master and Guardian of the Danish Realm. A little later, Margaret was also elected regent for life in Norway, so the issue of who would be in charge had been resolved. Fine. But Denmark and Norway still needed the fig-leaf authority of a man, so the search for a king continued. As luck would have it, Margaret managed to find a suitable candidate quickly, before the hoi polloi in the Danehof had a chance to start asking too many impertinent questions. In order to placate everyone demanding a man for the top job, Margaret adopted her older sister Ingeborg's grandson, Bogislav of Pomerania, and made him her designated heir. We don't know exactly when Bogislav was born, but it was sometime in the early 1380s, so when King Olav, his first cousin once removed, died, Bogislav was still a young boy, more or less the same age that Olav had been when he was elevated to King of Denmark. Bogislav was born and spent the first years of his life in Pomerania, where his father was the duke. Of course, if he was to wear the Norwegian and Danish crowns, he couldn't be called Bogislav anymore. So his name was changed to the more Scandinavian-sounding Erik. 
In Norway, he would be known as King Eric III. In Denmark, he was Eric VII. And in Sweden, he would be called Eric XIII. I know that's confusing, but don't worry. Soon enough, everyone started to call him Eric of Pomerania instead, stressing that he was a foreigner who didn't really have any business reigning over any Scandinavian kingdom. Apparently, the name change was the only preparation the new toddler king required as far as the Norwegians were concerned, because on September 8, 1389, he was recognized as king of Norway at the Thing in Trondheim, the seat of the Norwegian archbishop. It was around this time that our old friend Albert of Mecklenburg had been elected king of Sweden, but Margaret managed to convince a group of Swedish nobles that she and her adoptive son Bogislav, sorry, Eric, had a better claim to the Swedish throne through Margaret's dead husband, King Håkon, who, in turn, was the son of King Magnus Eriksson, who had been king of Norway and Sweden. Surely you remember him, the king who was plagued by the plague and by St. Bridget spreading gossip about his sex life. Gossip she'd heard from the Virgin Mary. You know the rest. The Danes invaded Sweden and Albert of Mecklenburg was defeated and taken captive with his son. Margaret took control of the whole country except Stockholm, which could keep up the resistance thanks to the Victual brothers supplying the city from the sea. Eventually, though, Albert preferred to renounce his claim to the Swedish crown and go back to Mecklenburg instead of spending the rest of his life in Danish captivity. When that business was all taken care of, the Swedes could officially elect Eric of Pomerania king of Sweden. That was in 1396. By then, he'd already been declared king by the Danes as well. Just like Albert of Mecklenburg, Eric was a foreigner, so technically he shouldn't have been eligible for the Swedish throne. But, as so often is the case, rules can be bent when the rich and the powerful ask for it. And at least this time, the elected foreigner could communicate with his Swedish subjects in Danish, which was a step up compared to Albert doing so in German. On June 17th, 1397, young Erik was crowned king of Denmark, Norway and Sweden by the Archbishop of Lund and Uppsala in the Cathedral of Kalmar in southeastern Sweden. The leading figures of the nobility from all three Scandinavian kingdoms were present at this elaborate coronation ceremony and we'll get back to that day in our next episode because it was part of a momentous event in Scandinavian history. King Erik now controlled a vast area, the largest state in medieval Europe, from Greenland in the west to the Finnish forests in the east, the Arctic Sea in the north and the Danish Isles in the south. Well, actually, he didn't control any of it. It was all in the hands of his great-aunt-slash-adoptive mother, Margaret. Even after Eric was declared an adult when he turned 18 years old at a ceremony in Elsinore in the year 1400, Margaret remained the de facto ruler of Eric's vast realm, and she would continue to fill that function until the day she died. As King Eric was growing up, he tended to make a favourable impression on people. He checked a lot of the boxes for what kings should be like, or at least what they should look like. He is supposed to have been very tall for his time. Even for our time, he was almost 190 centimetres tall, and everyone agreed that he was handsome, charming, well-spoken, intelligent, energetic and athletic. A clearly impressed future Pope Pius II, who met Eric, noted that the young Scandinavian king had a beautiful body, reddish-blonde hair and a long, narrow neck. Eric further impressed the cleric by jumping onto a horse without any assistance and without even touching the stirrups. Unfortunately, 
He was also reported to have suffered from some of the character traits you'd expect from someone who was used to always getting his way. He grew angry easily, and he was stubborn, even pig-headed. He also lacked his great-aunt's diplomatic touch, which could have come in handy for anyone who was destined to rule three kingdoms. And yes, that is what they call foreshadowing. In 1402, King Eric had been considered an adult for two years, and it was high time for him to find a wife. So he did what any other hot-blooded guy in his early 20s would do. He had his great-aunt initiate marriage negotiations. Margaret turned to the King of England about the possibility of Eric marrying an English princess. She wanted to strengthen the Anglo-Scandinavian connections by not only having Eric marry an English princess, but also by marrying off Eric's sister to the Prince of Wales. In the end, the Prince of Wales found a better match in Catherine of Valois, the daughter of the King of France, but Eric did marry Philippa, the second daughter of King Henry IV of England. It took a few years to finalise the deal, but on October 26th, 1406, King Eric could finally marry Philippa in the Cathedral of Lund. But even though he had waited so long for this day, he had to wait even longer to consummate his marriage, because the bride was only 12 years old on her wedding day. By all accounts, Philippa was a prudent choice, and she turned out to be a competent queen whenever she was given the chance to prove herself. And who knows, things might have ended better for Eric if his wife had been allowed more of a say in government, or if she hadn't died due to complications of childbirth in 1430, at the age of 36. When she died, Eric displayed his lack of diplomatic skills by marrying his dead wife's former lady-in-waiting, Cecilia. This caused quite a scandal at court, and when people started to compile a list of their complaints against Eric of Pomerania, his misalliance with Cecilia was one of them. In contrast to Eric, Margaret was an expert diplomat, and she used her skill to further the interests of Denmark in a number of ways. First of all, it was important to her to try and counteract the growing power and influence of the Hanseatic League in the Baltic Sea in general, and in Scandinavia in particular. To do so, she did what she could to strengthen the cooperation between the three kingdoms she controlled. And we'll talk more about that next time. She also turned to the Teutonic Knights to open negotiations about regaining Gotland. Remember last time we talked about how Albert of Mecklenburg had invited the knights to take over the island as he was retreating from Sweden. And when they moved in, they not only expelled the Victual brothers from Visby, but also basically destroyed the city. Well, now Margaret wanted the island back. In 1408, after a decade of Teutonic rule, Margaret managed to convince the knights to let her buy Gotland from them. At the time, the Teutonic knights were preparing for a war against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and they didn't want to risk a war on two fronts, so they agreed to relinquish the valuable piece of real estate in the middle of the Baltic Sea for less than what they probably could have gotten for it if they'd been in a better bargaining position. Two years later, in 1410, Margaret embarked on yet another attempt at expanding the borders of her realm, this time in the south. It was the good old issue of Schleswig again, the duchy that her ancestors had spent so much energy, money and blood on already. The Danes had been forced to hand over Schleswig to Holstein in 1386, but when the Duke Gerhard died in 1404, Margaret had maneuvered to make herself the guardian of his underage children, including his heir. 
It was as his guardian she tried to take control over as much of Schleswig as she could. But here, her diplomacy finally failed her, and it led to open war in 1410, a war that would go on for a quarter of a century. Initially, the war went well for the Danes, and in 1412, Margaret's forces captured the important port city of Flensburg, south of the border. Margaret herself was present, but, in hindsight, that might have been a bit of a mistake, because she caught the plague and died on board her boat in Flensburg Bay on October 28, 1412. The news of Margaret's death must have been met with some trepidation back in Denmark. After all, she'd ruled the country for 37 years, and most people alive at the time had no real recollections of anyone else being in charge. There was also the issue of Eric. When Margaret died, Eric had officially been king for 16 years already, but in practice he hadn't governed for a single day of his life. And now, when the reins of power are firmly in his hands, people around him started to worry about what kind of a ruler he'd be. When he was elected, he'd seemed like the perfect candidate for the crown, since his elevation was the way to enable the eminently competent Margaret to stay in power. But now she was dead and everyone was stuck with Eric. And even though he had been in close proximity to power for many years, people worried that he was far better acquainted with the trappings of kingship than the actual business of running a country. Yes, he was good-looking, and he could impress clerics with the way he jumped onto horses, but would he be any good at strategy, policy, or diplomacy? Even though people may have had their doubts, Eric wasn't a complete disaster on the throne, at least not to begin with, and a number of the things he was resented for were probably done for sound reasons, even though his opponents didn't see it that way. Some of Eric's decisions as king even remain to this day. For instance, he's the one who made Copenhagen the capital of Denmark in 1417. But then, in order to have a proper place to stay in his new capital, he went and confiscated Copenhagen Castle from the Bishop of Roskilde, thus making another enemy and proving that he didn't care as much as about not defending the church as Margaret had. He also encouraged the urban, administrative and financial development of his kingdoms. For instance, he established new castles and towns such as Landskrona on the eastern shore of the Ersund Strait in 1413. He also gave the city of Malmö, south of Landskrona and just opposite Copenhagen on the other side of the Ersund Strait, and the region of Scania, their current coats of arms, with the head of a griffin. This griffin was actually the heraldic symbol of Eric's family, and it's because of him you can see a crowned griffin's head on every single truck or car produced by Saab Scania. But castles and heraldry aside, the most important thing Eric did as king was arguably to introduce the so-called sound dues. That is the tax that any vessel that wanted to pass in or out of the Ersund Strait had to pay to the Danish crown. This was done in 1429 in order to help fund the continued war of Schleswig, but it would remain a central part of the revenues of Denmark for hundreds of years, until 1857, making the country even richer than before. The sound dues were administered where the Ersund Strait is at its most narrow, at Elsinore, and Eric founded yet another castle here to keep track of the traffic in and out of the strait. Scandinavian vessels were exempt from paying the toll, but the Hanseatic League 
found themselves diverting considerable sums every year to the Danish coffers in order to be able to sail in and out of the Baltic Sea. That must have been annoying, not least since they knew a lot of that money went to fund a war where Denmark and the Hansa were on opposite sides. That war was, of course, the continued conflict in Schleswig. One of the reasons for the introduction of the sound juice to begin with had been to fund the war in Schleswig that Eric had inherited from Margaret. Eric shared his great-aunt's dream of regaining control over the duchy, but he didn't share her aptitude for achieving this goal. Still, the attempts to take back Schleswig monopolized a lot of his attention, meaning that his two other kingdoms were neglected. If his effort to capture Schleswig had been successful, his neglect of Norway and Sweden might have been forgiven. But unfortunately for Eric, it wasn't successful. On the contrary, it dragged on for years and years with no Danish gains worth mentioning. Eric would spend most of his reign entangled in this war against Holstein and the Hanseatic League, and the only thing it got him was into debt. This debt then forced him to raise new and impopular taxes, of which the sound use was one, but far from the only one. One of the reasons Eric's war over Schleswig turned out to be so long and unsuccessful was that he lacked Margaret's shrewdness and talent for diplomacy. She wasn't afraid to use force, but it wasn't the only weapon in her arsenal. She much preferred negotiations if she could get what she wanted that way instead. Eric, on the other hand, combined an over-reliance on force with devastatingly ham-fisted diplomacy. The fighting over Schleswig continued on and off until 1423, when the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, who had grown sick of the fighting, handed down a verdict granting King Eric control over the duchy. Eric could hardly believe his luck. Finally the war was over, and he had won! He was so happy and grateful that the war had ended, and ended in his favour, that he set off on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land that was to last for two years. So between 1423 and 1425, Eric was away. In his absence, Queen Philippa was left to govern his three kingdoms. On this extended vacation in sunnier climes, Eric had a great time. One highlight came when he at long last arrived in Jerusalem. There he was greeted warmly and dubbed a Knight of the Holy Sepulchre. That must have pleased him enormously. But when he returned to home to Copenhagen again, King Eric realized that it might have been a mistake to take such a long leave of absence, because it turned out that his opponents in the War of Schleswig couldn't care less what the Holy Roman Emperor had to say about the matter, and so the war against Holstein and the Hanseatic League had actually continued in Eric's absence. Luckily for the Danes, Queen Philippa had risen to the occasion and proved that she was just as capable as her husband of handling a war. The War of Schleswig would continue for another ten years, draining Eric's coffers and trying the patience of his subjects, especially those in Norway and Sweden. Eventually, these subjects would run out of patience, but the fallout of that crisis is the topic for a future episode. Next time, we'll rewind the tape a bit, back to a happier time in King Eric's life. Back to the summer of 1397, to be exact. Remember that I told you we'd talk more about the events surrounding Eric's coronation in Kalmar? Well, that's what on the agenda next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? 
Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts these days. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast web shop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.